18th chapter. <laughs> Last week we finished up on the uh, 17th and dealt with this judgment situation and coming of uh, Christ. And we took that and put it in the context of Matthew 23 and 24. And we will again get to it in the 21st chapter of Luke. And after we finally get through all of this, we'll go back and look at all of these various judgment passages. Uh, in the 18th chapter, we have the, the record here. And remember all of this as we're coming into it. Jesus is on a trip to Jerusalem, his last trip. And you can see by going back to the 9th chapter and verse uh, 51, that's where the entire discourse starts. They set out for Jerusalem, and all the way unto the last, we're in the last few days of the life of Christ, the last week, and this is a trip, and all these questions and comments and observations come up on this trip to Jerusalem. And when he gets there, of course, then we'll have the, the trial and, and execution and, and then the resurrection. But it's interesting from the standpoint that well over half of Luke is tied into this last event in the life. And we noted that just the last few days in the life of Christ occupy about 25% of the writing in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So obviously what happened at the last was vividly impressed on their mind. I mean, that, that is where all of them put their emphasis. It's vividly on their mind. And as he goes, keep in mind, too, another thing that may have helped to impress it on their mind so much, he has told them that he is going to be killed when he gets there. He's already told them that. And they, and this flies right in the face of what they believe. They, they believe that when the Messiah comes, he's going to live forever here on this earth. Uh, one passage stating that is John 12, 34. They also believe that the kingdom will have its uh, power base at Jerusalem, and it's the holy city. And they believe the temple will remain there, and so the Messiah will reign from Jerusalem, from the temple. He will live forever. And they're looking for him like David to lead Israel in a rebellion against uh, Rome. And the real enemy to Israel was their enemies, uh, Rome. That, that was the enemy. And so they wanted a Messiah that would lead them in a rebellion against Rome. They would then have their land and their, their country back again. And then they believed that this Messiah, just like when David was king over Israel, he conquered and subjected to himself surrounding powers. And the Jews felt that, uh, obviously, believing that theirs is the true God, they have the true law, that then the rest of the world would be blessed uh, through the reigning of that Messiah. And so when they went back to the passage where God made the promise to Abraham that uh, first of all he told him to go out into a land and that he would give him that land, he would make uh, nations from him, and then he said all the nations of the earth will be blessed through your seed. Uh, the first time that promise is recorded is in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Well, the Jew, of course, uh, knew that he had received the land uh, they knew about them coming, tracing their own or origin uh, to Abraham. And so what they were waiting for is that seed that would come by way of Abraham that would be this Messiah 
uh, of the by Abraham by way of David and would lead them and in the same way that David did and and they would the kingdom would be there and he would reign from Jerusalem well here Jesus has been with them over three years and they have a misunderstanding of all these things uh, he's not going to live forever here on a body he's going to be executed uh, the city the holy city is going to be destroyed the holy temple is going to be destroyed and the Jews are going to be scattered and become a hiss and a byword as they're scattered all outside their country. They're going to become a defeated people. The kingdom will be a spiritual one where God reigns from the heart and the true seed of Israel, the true Israelite, will be individuals that are converted in their heart and have their faith in God and, and who love him. That will, that will be exposed as the, as the true Jew. They don't understand any of this. Their interpretation is off. Now, here's a little side thing that we can learn uh, uh, because it's something we've dealt with before as we, we look at their misunderstandings here. We see that uh, they were acting on what they did understand, correct? They all believed in God, the, the, the disciples. But they had, saw the, had seen the miracles of, of Jesus and had responded to it and said, you know, he has to be. Uh, the prophet of God, the miracles testify. So they had repented based on his preaching and John the Baptist prepared the way and they had put their trust in him, they'd been baptized and so what they understood they had responded to and, and were obeying it. But they had a misunderstanding of some very important doctrines, right? The doctrine of the resurrection, the doctrine of the uh, kingdom, uh, the things about the, the temple, uh, who a true Jew was. I mean, that's some very important things. And they misunderstood all of it. And not only did they misunderstand it, they were so far away in their understanding that uh, uh, Jesus would make the statement to them that uh, I didn't teach you all truth because you were not yet able to bear it, but the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. When he was talking to them as uh, recorded in John 16, beginning with verses 7 through 13. So they had a misunderstanding but we begin to note something in their misunderstanding. There is a tremendous difference between an individual who is in willful disobedience to God and one who is wrong in, in, in simply wrong because he sincerely misunderstands some things. There's a big difference there. What about the fellowship situation at, at this point as we step in here in the 18th chapter? Our <clears throat> Is Jesus and the disciples and, and his other followers there, or are they in fellowship with one another? They are, aren't they? Uh, has he even insinuated uh, that uh, this fellowship is going to be broken because of their misunderstanding of some of these points? Is, he, is his attitude one that they have to understand this immediately, or is his attitude one of patience where it seems like they've got years to come to a full understanding of this. One of patience, isn't it? In fact, uh, uh, let's pursue it a little further. On Pentecost, when we have the several thousand converted, even at this point, when they now understand the death, burial, and resurrection, and realize their misunderstanding of the Messiah, but even at this point, do they understand what a true Jew is? Do they understand about the law of Moses and that it was a, 
that it was something to bring man to Christ and it would eventually be nailed to the cross. They, they still don't. Uh, they, they still think you have to be circumcised to be saved, don't they? And 16 years after Pentecost, when you have that debate in Acts 15, they feel the same way. Are they in fellowship? Are they all Christians? Are they, are they followers? They, they are, aren't they? So we can see something here that all, um, all disobedience is not the same. That there is a distinct difference between an individual knowing and understanding the will of God and disobeying it and in somebody who honestly misunderstands it. Now, it's still right, even though I might misunderstand it, and I'm still wrong, or maybe in sin, but there's a difference in the way God looks at it. And, and this is a point we need to make clear because there's, a, there's been a lot of, of split and broken churches and disfellowshipping and hard feelings in the church because of a lack of recognition of this point. Uh, and this feeling that some have that, you know, the only way somebody can walk with me is if he understands everything exactly the way I do. Well, hold your place here again and to set our frame of mind for, for the line of thought in their, in their understanding. Turn over to John, the uh, 15th chapter, and look at verse uh, 22 and then... Uh, 24. And what chapter? Uh, John 15. John 15. <coughs> verse 22. Uh, Greg, would you read those two verses, please? 22 and also 24. Okay. Had I not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty. But now they have no excuse for their sin. 24. Had I not accomplished the works among them which no other ever accomplished, they would not be guilty. But now they have seen and have hated both me and my father. Okay, look at the statement there. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty. It doesn't say they wouldn't be in sin or wouldn't be wrong, but it wouldn't be guilty. And now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. Apparently, ignorance is an excuse. And then the statement down there, even about belief in him, it says that... Uh, uh, if I had not done among them which no one else did, in other words, the miracles, they would not be guilty of sin. He didn't expect them to just believe in Jesus as the Son of God without evidence. So even though he was the Son of God, if they had not seen the evidence, but the fact they had seen the evidence, but now they have seen these miracles, and yet they have hated both me and my, my father. So we see the, a principle there that there is a distinct difference. And, and now we'll pause and, and think on that just a moment. In our own dealing with one another, and by the way, with the point we're making, we're going to back up with this first illustration here in the, in the 18th chapter. In our own dealing with one another, uh, don't we make allowances for mistakes made in ignorance uh, as opposed to some willful premeditated wrong that somebody's in, involved in. We do, don't we? We make allowances all the time. Well, even in our on the job or in school or in a family, do we also make allowances for expected maturity based on years of life 
And that is all figured into our relationship when it comes to even thinking about responsibility and all. We do. We don't expect the same thing of every member of the family, do we? We, 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 we expect maturity due to age. Uh, and then after a person gets even older, we, expect, we reach a point where we expect less again and, and back off. That uh, we're made in the image of God and we have this ability to perceive these kinds of things. And in the same way that some people have created a God that doesn't even have the mercy and compassion and understanding that, that we as human beings have. We take all of that into consideration in our dealing with one another. We know the difference between premeditated murder and manslaughter or second-degree murder. Uh, you know, that all, and, we, and we look at all crime from, from this standpoint. Okay, now, as we look into the, the 18th uh, chapter, Jesus is going to give an example here where he's talking about a particular subject. Uh, but the point I'm interested in making along with that is that he regularly pulls attributes uh, uh, that we recognize in human beings involving compassion and mercy, etc., to say to us that if even human beings have this kind of mercy and compassion, you know, how much more would you expect of, of God? Okay, remember the example when he was talking about prayer. In the Matthew, the 7th chapter, beginning with verse 7, he said, Ask, and you shall receive. Knock, and it shall be open. Seek, and you shall find. And then everyone that asks, knocks, uh, it will, will be open. They will receive. They will find if they seek. But then remember how he backed that up. He said, Which one of you, if you had a son that asked you of something to eat, would turn around and give him a scorpion or a snake? And he said, if you be an evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, then how much more your heavenly father. So he's saying that, that you're made in the image of God. That if, if you have this kind of feeling towards your own children, don't you people realize that your creator, your father in heaven, has even more of that? Whatever you possess in the finite, he possesses in the infinite. And so he's trying to teach them to go to God in prayer with confidence he loves you even more than you love your own children. And if you respond this way, how much more? Your father. Okay, now, notice this same type of reasoning then about uh, uh, their situation and, and an understanding about God. Uh, Paul, would you start there in the, the 18th chapter and just go ahead and read on down through the 8th verse there. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care about men, that because this widow who keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice, so that she will eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjudge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones, who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, he, will he find faith on the earth? Okay, now, without looking at the specific type thing he's talking about, obviously there was a situation there where uh, some of them were feeling they were not getting their just dues here on this earth, right? And he's dealing with that. 
and they're wondering, well, where is God? You know, why is it that uh, that in, in the context here, he, there's several possibilities. Uh, one may be that uh, Israel is a conquered country, and they have been conquered uh, going back to uh, 605 when Nebuchadnezzar came in. And so here we are, all these centuries, they are still a conquered. Rome is now the fourth great empire uh, that has conquered Israel and ha has control over them. And things are tough <clears throat> as a result of being oppressed by Rome. They hated the tax collectors because they unfairly taxed them and, and took, a, took away from them. And so his response to this is that, uh, you know, the, you're wondering where is, where is God? I can't understand how can God tolerate this? And then so he calls on an example, just like Jesus one time called on the, the situation with the father and said even the father responds to his son. He said even an unjust judge, if a woman is persistent and continues to act, uh, ask for justice, she's probably going to eventually get it. I mean, even somebody that is, that is not really a just person deep down knows what right is. And if somebody is absolutely persistent, and they're liable to get what they want in that realm. And so he says, if you can see this, that even an unjust judge, through the persistence of somebody wanting uh, something, will respond and do the right thing, then how much more the Father in heaven? So even, so even the worst among you, an unjust judge, uh, can respond to persistence and do the right thing. So then how much more your Father in heaven? And so obviously, he's saying it, it may not, what you're wanting, you may not get when you think you should have it. Uh, just like a child might not get what he wants when he thinks, you know, that he should have it. But uh, he simply says that God is in tune. And then notice this next statement uh, right after he says, And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? In other words, they're not getting an answer. But he said, even if unjust judges are touched, then how much more God? I tell you that he will see that they get justice, and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? In other words, as a result of them not getting the answer to what they wanted, as soon as they think they should, what was their danger of happening? Losing their faith. And that's why the statement there, when the Son of Man comes, will he find uh, faith on the earth? Okay, now, notice when the context here, though. The context is right after the judgment situation of the 17th chapter last week. And remember, we're, we're in a context where we're headed to Jerusalem. What's going to happen to Jesus at Jerusalem? Kill him. Who's going to kill him? The, crowd, the Jews, aren't they? And the religious leaders. Okay, right now, was it popular to be a, a follower of Jesus? Could it cost you? Remember, uh, John said that many of the uh, chief rulers would not confess him for fear of being put out of the synagogues. John 12, 42, for they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Uh, Jesus said I, that uh, I, didn't, I came to bring division. There's going to be father and son divided, mother and daughter and daughter-in-law, two against three, three against two in the same household, that 
that there were going to be some that responded to him and others that didn't, and those that didn't were going to be divided. And, and then he told them that they were going to be persecuted as a result of what happened. So here they've been following him for three years. And all they've got to show for their efforts is a lot of persecution and a lot of name-calling, a lot of being put down by the vast, uh, the, uh, by the religious elite. Every time they went into Jerusalem to, t to partake of the Passover, they had to turn around like a dog with his tail between his legs and leave town because the religious leaders wanted to kill Jesus. And they wanted to destroy this movement. Well, now they're going in, and Jesus has already told them what they're going to do. And he said, when they smite the shepherd, the sheep are going to be scattered. And so he'd already, he'd already told them what's, what's going to happen. Well, at the same time you've got this going on uh, among the Jews themselves, then you've also got Rome who has subjected all of Israel. In short, the real followers of the Messiah, from a justice standpoint, are really getting it socked to them. Uh, their, their fellow Jews who did not embrace Jesus are really making life miserable for them. And then on the other hand, you've got the fact that although they are God's people, they are a captive in their own country by Rome. And so the question is, obviously then, they've been praying to God. And God hasn't been answering that prayer. He, in other words, that, and not only that, here's what Jesus is concerned about too, that, and this will come out as we move on. They think Jesus is the Messiah. That finally God has answered our prayer. But they come to get Jesus and Peter takes his sword. He's ready to fight. You know, that's what they, that's what they were going to do, just like in the, with David. And he turns around and rebukes Peter, doesn't he? Let's him take him away and execute him. And here they, are, here they are left again. So the statement here is that these people don't understand what's going on. They just know that they've had their trust in God. They know they've responded to Jesus as the Messiah. They don't understand how they can believe so strongly in God and be so devout, at the same time be treated in such an unjust way by the world. And, and, and they want to be vindicated. Uh, in the fact that they are right on this, and they want the world to be able to see, and they, they're having a hard time seeing this. And so, and then keep in mind, it's all complicated to them by their misunderstanding of the kingdom in the first place. So what Jesus is really telling them to do, he's, why does he say this in the first place? He's concerned about their losing their faith. And that's why he ends it in, in the way that he does. And so he gives them an illustration, just like he did with prayer. And he doesn't just say with prayer, listen, you go ahead and ask, and you will receive. He wants them to understand the logic behind it. And he says, listen, you know when your own children ask something that they need, you give it to them. They don't ask for something they need, and you turn around and give them something bad. Well, then why in the world do you think your Father in Heaven would respond that way to you? And now in the same way, that they're all concerned, they're being treated in an unjust way, their, their Messiah is going to be executed, Rome is in control. The other Jews are against them. And there's a lot of prayers going up to God. And Jesus is concerned because it, it's going to get worse before it gets better, right? It's going to get worse before it gets better. And so he's concerned that some people are going to lose their faith. And so, and all the way through here, by the way, on these judgment passages, he's concerned about they're going to, some people are going to lose their faith before it gets that better because it's going to get worse. So then he not only says this, but he wants them to understand. And he said, a man on this earth, uh, even an unjust judge, if you're extremely persistent 
and beg for justice, you're probably going to wind up getting it. Then how much more? What makes you think that the perfect judge of all the world is not going to give you justice? You have to get it. Okay, now, think from that to ourselves and in any present situation. Okay, that was, that was their situation, and we'll continue with it. If it is true that God is perfectly just and he is perfectly fair, and of course to be anything else would not, would, would not be God, but if he is perfectly just and if he is perfectly fair, uh, then could you deduct from that of necessity in the final analysis there will always have to be justice where the righteous are vindicated, no matter what the situation. It would be, wouldn't it? See, that's why the prophets in the Old Testament, when a lot of their preaching of forecasting was not necessarily uh, looking through a looking glass and knowing exactly what was going to happen here, but it was rather knowing the character of God. And if God makes a promise, he's going to keep it. And so knowing the character of God, they spoke with absolute assurance. If God said something, it'll be that way. You can bank on it. And in that sense, they, they looked and, and saw those. And I'm telling you, in the same sense you can today, that uh, you can look to the future and in any situation, and just like you can live in a society like ours, where it seems that, uh, that what is wrong seems to be winning the day, but you can also know all the time you're looking at it, hey, they're not going to come out on top. God's law is inherently right. Uh, the Lord is, is, is going to win out. Sodom, Rome, Babylon, Assyria, a host of other countries, they're all there as examples as to what happens with ungodliness in the final analysis. And so that you can look at this and say, and the, the, I may not know when, and we may have to suffer a little more before what is right wins out. But in the final analysis, what is right will always win out. And of course, you can project that on into eternity. That uh, the very nature of God being just and true to his word means that all the other has to come about. Okay, any comments or, or observations on the point at hand so far as uh, either the projection we made from it or the, or the context itself? Talking earlier about um, differences <coughs> in the way God looks on sin, is it, is it in Kings where... Uh, they talk about the intentional sin. It's not. It's a bit numbers. Numbers. It's in number of places. Numbers summarizes it. Numbers eighteen. Fifteen. Fifteen. Uh, numbers fifteen, verse twenty-two through thirty-one. But uh, what she was mentioning there is that under the law of Moses, uh, the covenant of the letter, there was the assumption that there would be sins committed in ignorance. And therefore, they had a sacrifice. And so anytime they became aware, they offered their sacrifice. And, and, and all the way through there, he mentions individuals. He mentions the priest. He mentions the king. And then after he talks about that, he comes on and says, but the person who sins presumptuously, there is no sacrifice for his sin, but he is to be cut off from Israel. In other words, the, the person who, who knows God's law and purposely and willfully sins and refuses to repent, there is no sacrifice for that kind of thing, that uh, that person, if they're not going to repent, would be cut off. On the other hand, 
you've got all, he's just uh, talked about an entire group of people in any number of situations who did sin uh, through ignorance and, and, and the patience of God waited and allowed uh, the, whatever time was necessary for them to come to, to understand that particular point. And they were to offer a burnt offering. Right, there was a burnt offering. In fact, uh, part of the Israelite offerings was a, an offering for sins. They knew they would commit sins in ignorance and as well as fall short in other areas, and they had a sacrifice for it. Any other comment? Okay, on to the next principle. So much of what Jesus deals with, time after time after time, it comes about because of a misunderstanding they have. Keep in mind, they already have the law, and the law is perfect. Moses gave the law, okay? The problem is their misinterpretations. And so Jesus has spent his time all through his ministry, whether he's dealing with the kingdom or the law, dealing with those specific points where they misunderstand. Remember, for example, when they ask him about the resurrection and the Sadducees have problems with that. And he goes back and explains just what their real problem is and, and deals with their misunderstanding. Remember when he talks to them about marriage and divorce. There was a real hot debate going on. Uh, can you divorce for any and every reason? And, you know, people have sometimes said, well, Jesus laid down something perfectly new about this thing of adultery being the only reason. It wasn't perfectly new, was it? Where was it first? Genesis. He just quotes Genesis. He says, listen, in the beginning, God said such and such. Uh, but after 400 years of bondage in Egypt and, and not having studied the law or anything, uh, you guys were so hard-hearted and unspiritual and stubborn that, that Moses permitted some things for the hardness, but this is, this is not the way. All right, then when he deals with this subject, though, of, of adultery and, and the divorce, what, there was a debate going on. We go back outside the Bible and read the Jewish literature at this time, and there was a real hot debate among the Jewish scholars. And there were some of the scholars that said adultery was the only reason they could divorce, and there were some that said you could divorce for any reason whatsoever. And so they were really wanting to, there was the school of, of Shemei, and there was a school of Hillel, and they had two different thoughts on that. And so Jesus tackled it, and, and he took a position on it. And I'm saying that when it comes to the areas that Jesus hits, he really regularly is delving into those areas where there have been, their religious leaders and scholars have been misinterpreting and misrepresenting what God wanted, and he specifically tackles them head on. Okay, he's just did this with some things about the kingdom and justice and etc. Now, we have an event uh, concerning personal righteousness and right standing before God. And we're going to see that, uh, how the religious leaders of the day think about this situation, and he tackles it head on, and I'm sure this would this would go over great with the conservatives of that day, the conservative religious people. Okay, uh, that verses 9 through uh, 14. Okay, you got Annette or James, one of you want to read that? And he spake this parable unto, unto certain which trusted in themselves, and they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one of Pharisee and the other publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not like the other 
men are, extortioners, unjust adulterers, and even as is publican. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I possess, and a publican staying far off, not looked up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but, but smote upon his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For every one that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. You know, it is interesting how Jesus <coughs> talked about humility so many times in this. Uh, in the, keep in mind, John said he did a lot of talking, you know, that he, in miracles and all said, man, the world wouldn't contain the books that ought to be written. But isn't it interesting how many times we get back to this thing of humility, obviously from the context that devout Jews were proud of their devoutness and religiousness and their rightness. They were proud of it. And uh, let's look at this now. Two men went up to the temple to pray. What about the Pharisee now? What do we know about them? Are they a devout, conservative Jewish group of the day? They're not to be seen. Okay, but, but I mean in the eyes of all the Jews, they would have said this is the most conservative sect among the Jews. They were the separated ones. They were the ones that was concerned about yeah. Israel being influenced by Grecian culture and philosophy. And so they come into being in this period between the Old and the New Testament uh, with good intentions. We talk about uh, restoring the gospel and restoring the church and things like that. These people were out to restore the law of Moses. That in being conquered for all these years, Israel was being influenced by the culture that they were in. And, and they, had, they lost their own language. They were losing their identity. And even the, the Jewish Bible was the Greek Septuagint. And so the, the Pharisees then were the restorers. They were the Puritans of that day. And so they, they go back to try and very noble purpose to restore the law and to call people back to the law of Moses and to doing it exactly the way the law worked it out. And so the purpose was noble and everything. Well, they worked on it and, and it got a lot of it restored. Well, here's what happened. They reached a certain point and somewhere on the line, they began to realize just how much more accurate they were than everybody else. And they began to look down their nose at others. And they began to realize that how much better they were than most other people. Just like we could look at a society today and say, hey, we're not out there uh, fornicating and doing drugs and breaking in people's house. You know, we're pretty good folk. And so they began to realize that they were better than the average folk out there. And they were more religious than the average uh, person. And, and they were more devout than the average Jew. And they thought, God must really be pleased with them. You know, so... They became very proud of their righteousness. And so what happens here, when, when the guy goes up and he says, uh, the Pharisee praying, uh, I'm not a robber or an evildoer or an adulterer, not a tax collector, he fasts. Is there anything wrong with not being any of those things or fasting? It was his attitude, wasn't it? He was proud and... Uh, but notice he wasn't accepted. What's the indication there? When the other guy beat his breast and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said he went away justified and the other guy was unjustified. 
what in the world kept that Pharisee from not being able to be justified when he's living so much better than the other guy? Probably in his heart, maybe. He didn't, he didn't do those things, but it could have been in his heart, but he just didn't do them just because. Um, it, it's like that he missed the whole point, kind of. He was doing it because maybe to get to heaven or to show other people that it wasn't really in his heart. He, other things could have been in his heart. All right, is there, that's right. Other things could be in the heart. In other words, what is the indication that he's not as good as he thinks he is? He's still a sinner, and he didn't recognize himself as a sinner. Okay. Even though he may, by comparison, right. even though he maybe could look at this publican, and by comparison, he looked a little better, the truth is, he, he's a sinner too, isn't he? He doesn't know it all. Is, is every doctrine the Pharisee believes right? Is he right? God forbid the guy's wrong about the kingdom, isn't he? He's wrong about uh, the temple. He's wrong about the thing about the city. He's wrong about the Messiah. Uh, there, there's a multitude of things. He's wrong about his understanding of salvation. So he, he has all kinds of misunderstandings. The truth is, uh, here he is looking down at that tax collector. He has a lot of misunderstandings. And not only that, when it comes to the, the moral things of the law, was he really as good as he thought he was? He wasn't, was he? Uh, how many times did Jesus get on him and says, on these outward physical things that other people see, you look pretty good. But on the issues of the heart, that's why he said that you're like the graves that look good on the outside and underneath have got dead men bones. He said, when people see you standing out there praying on, praying on the street corner and they see you walking around counting your beads or your plylacteries are hanging down and you've got all your scriptures tattooed to your forehead, you know, they really think you're religious. But in that heart is, is a heart that is maybe selfish, uh, unconcerned about the plight of others, boastful, proud, arrogant, uh, maybe not honest. In, in, in some areas. So the guy really was not in anywhere near shape that he was. So he was proud. He had no reason to be proud. Okay, now let's look at the Paris, the, the publican. I was just going to say, obviously, that's the whole point. That was what his problem was, was his pride, because uh, he, he start, it starts off saying, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on right. everybody else. Jesus told this parable. And then he ends it with saying, I tell you that this man rather than the other went home justified before God for everyone who exalts himself right. shall be humble. Did he have any reason, if he really understood, to be confident of his righteousness anyway? I mean, he was... Ask, ask it again. Yeah, I said, did he really have any... If he really knew as, uh, what was involved here, did he have any real reason to be confident of his righteousness? Confident of salvation, but not righteousness, right? Yeah, of righteousness. I mean, mm -hmm. was he really? He wasn't really as righteous. I'm saying as he thought he was. Right. Yet he had all that confidence, and you know that. Uh, and another thing, look at what he was doing. He was he was getting his. Where was his haughtiness coming from now, and his confidence? We we know that he's wrong on a lot of points, and he's not morally really what he should be. But yet something is causing this guy to be puffed up and haughty. And the other guy's humble. 
It's keeping the letter, I guess, of them all. Okay. Or try or thinks he is anyway. Or he's picked out some things. Okay. He's picked out some things that he can do. Right. Is it very difficult to partake of the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week? Is it very difficult to refrain from dragging a piano in the building? I mean, can, it, can we keep that perfectly if we want to? Is it very difficult to be immersed or anything like that? I mean, there are physical things that can be kept to perfection, aren't they? Even the tithing or giving 10%, it can be kept to perfection. By the way, did the Pharisee keep it to perfection? He said I tithe. He did. Keep the Sabbath day to perfection? Sure did. Uh, so that... You, you, there are physical, man is a sinner and he falls short, but he can pick out some physical things that he can keep to perfection. And uh, people who think they are more righteous than what they are have a tendency really to pick out some items that they exalt above other items and keep them to perfection rather than look at the real heart issues. All right, now, his haughtiness, Jack mentioned there, he could be haughty because rather than look at himself in comparison to the perfection of God's law or in comparison to God, that's the standard, he looked at himself in comparison to his fellow human beings. And I suggest to you that because uh, he's condemning pride, as Barbara said, pride and haughtiness, that the only way any person can ever be full of pride, uh, no matter what they do, is to look at themselves in comparison to another human being. I mean, if, I don't even know Michael Jordan other than see him on TV, but if he is proud of his ability to play basketball, what percentage does Michael Jordan shoot anyway? Anybody know? Same. About, about 50%. About 50%. Um, the, the best hitter in the major leagues right now is a fellow, and I can't, can't hardly pronounce his name. Forgot the, the name, an awkward name in American League. He's batting the highest that anybody has batted for years and years and years at this stage in the season, about 390. That means he makes an out more than six times out of ten, doesn't it? And um, Babe Ruth struck out more times than he hit home runs. Michael Jordan hits somewhere around 50% of his shots. So he misses half what he throws up. Does he ever uh, uh, have the ball taken from him? Does he ever make a stupid mistake out there? He does. Then if he is proud, where is his pride coming from? By comparing himself to the others. Okay. He's looking at others. I suggest to you that anybody that's proud does so by picking out another human being to compare himself to. The A student who's proud of the fact that he's made all A's, well, uh, our grades are a comparison type thing. And so then it's a, it's a comparison with others. But the truth is, a straight A student doesn't know it all, does he? By a long shot. And, and the Pharisee, the truth is, he was an absolute sinner that needed for God to forgive him. And he didn't realize it. Where in here does he ask for forgiveness? He was going to go to heaven based on his merit. And so the other guy didn't quite come up to his standard, but man, he understood something that the Pharisee didn't. Uh, he wasn't proud. He knew that he was a sinner. 
And he was just simply beating his chest and not looking to heaven and begging God to forgive him. And Jesus said, hey, he understands something that the Pharisee, he's the one that's going home justified. All right, when Jesus tackles this issue, he hits the core of what was wrong with all of Judaism and their understanding of salvation. They looked at the law of Moses as an end within itself rather than the means to an end. It was a, it was a means to an end. It, the law was designed to get them to realize that they were sinners and that they did need to be forgiven. They came to look at it as an end within itself and, and, and the real religious among them thought of themselves as keeping it because rather than look to God as the standard, they looked to their fellow men. And therefore, if you could find some people out there that weren't up to you, you could feel haughty and proud and think, he's the guy that's going to be lost. I'm the one that's, that's going to be saved. And they missed it. And so he deals with a very important misunderstanding. And can, can you see also how that when eventually in the New Testament, through the apostles, the great truth of the new covenant unfolds, and that is that we're going to be saved by grace through faith and not of works, that how important that... I just had this conversation with someone this week, and they were talking about that, about um, people that were good and stuff and everything and going to heaven. Do you think that maybe if you looked at it more like... It's, it's like we kind of look at the law sort of like that... Like... We're doing something for God that way, and maybe if you look at it as far as He gave it to us because He loves us and He doesn't want us to get hurt, and that to the extent that we do that, it's not that. I mean, to the extent that you do that, you're just going to benefit. You're and right. if you don't, if you don't do it, it's not so much. I don't know. Maybe I'm selfish in this way, but a lot of the reason why I do things that it's not, it's not all out of love for God. I know it should be, but a lot of it is selfish. I know. I know that he's, you know, I know that it's right, and I know that it's the only way that's going to work. And sure, you, can do it, you can do it selfishly, I think. Sure. You, uh, it's the only way, but I think if people would look at it like that, it's like we're doing God this big favor because we're keeping the law, but it, that's kind of ridiculous because I think that, I mean, he gave it to us for us, right. and he's doing us a big favor for giving it to us. Right, like on the Sabbath, he said, her. man, the Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath, and then on the law, that's exactly right. There are a lot of people in business that do right things because it's the best way. Honesty is the best policy in business. In, in the long run, it literally is the best, maybe sometimes not in the short run, but in the long run, it literally is the, is the best policy. But yeah, you can keep parts of moral laws for selfish reasons, and again, the law is the reflection of God's personality and all, but we, and what he's condemning here is not keeping the law and not wanting to keep it, but he's condemning an, an attitude of not recognizing that the truth is we do fall short and that we have no business of feeling haughty and proud before God, that rather we ought to be humble and we ought to recognize that we do fall short and we ought not to be looking down on other people simply because we kept a few more things maybe than they did. All right, now let's look again at the Pharisee and the uh, tax collector there. When a Pharisee looks at them, notice what he looks at. He looks at the fact that he doesn't steal, and what about the tax collector? Good chance he's a little bit dishonest, isn't he, if he's a typical tax collector that day. 
and maybe he looks at some of these other physical points, but this, let's look at some things that, that, that are more of, uh, are also in the law. When it comes to, to humility, mercy, unselfishness, do you think maybe the, the, uh, the other fellow may have topped him in those areas? Could be that, and, and he had, what about an, an, an understanding of his own condition? Uh, I'm saying that I don't, the Pharisee was not a better spiritual person. That the other fellow knew his condition, was honest with it. He had to have some qualities to cause him to even come to that point. And the Pharisee is way out here, uh, totally in left field, so far as an understanding of, of God's righteousness. And so this here is a lesson that if Jesus couldn't get across to these people, there's no way they're going to enter into the new covenant because the new covenant is going to be based on a person's understanding that at his best he falls short and therefore will need to sacrifice. In fact, what about this Pharisee? Does Jesus need to die for him? He, he really doesn't, does he? I mean, why, why should he die for him? He's got it all worked out. And, and so that the everything about salvation was of such a nature that somebody with a frame of mind that that Pharisee's operating with is just going to find it next to impossible uh, to, un to understand. So what he says here is going to be extremely important in this little illustration to prepare in the minds for the Jews to understand the new covenant and what it is enacted. Any other comments or observations on that? Okay, we'll go ahead then and pause for tonight. Remember that what is happening here, you're on that last trip down to Jerusalem. Almost without exception, everything Jesus discusses is an area that is being mistaught by the religious leaders of that day. And every time he tackles it, he does several things. One is he helps their understanding but is what also has happened to the, as, for example, if you were a Pharisee and heard this illustration, what would that do for you? Think it might make you mad? Okay. I'm saying that the very things that was giving them a better understanding was also making a lot of people mad. And by the time they do get to the city, and they go around and tell the leaders, hey, let me tell you what this guy is teaching. And he's teaching such and such and such and such. And they're going to call him up and, and try to verify whether he's teaching it. By the time he gets there, they're going to be like a, savage, a group of savage wolves wanting to take his life. Because, see, it's one thing for him to be teaching these things, but he's really affecting the multitudes. The multitudes are flocking to him and hearing him gladly. And here are the Pharisees watching these people by the drove go over to this disciple that in their judgment is leading them astray. And publicly before everybody, he's tackling all these interpretations that they have given to the common people. Any comment? <clears throat>